Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. How old do you have to be to be President of the United States? Uh, our children uh, reflected on what they would do if they were the king, if they were the leader. And so I checked uh, my phone, of course, and just asked, uh, what is the age to be president of the United States? I'm sure many of you know, but the answer I got is 35 years. For one to be president of the United States, he or she must have attended, attained a minimum age of 35 years. In settling for the age limit of 35 years, the framers of the Constitution believed that the holder of the highest office on the land should be mature and experienced. So this morning and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider a king, a boy king, who started out as a boy king of Israel, of Judah, Josiah. So let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, may we uh, may our hearts be attentive to your word today. Uh, may we consider it and may we apply it to our lives. And we just thank you for this wonderful uh, history we have of your work in God's people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 34. And we also have this account in Second Kings chapter 22. Some, some variances, but it's basically the same story. So we're going to look at the Chronicles account for this morning. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 34. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. So we have this summary of Josiah's life. He becomes king at eight years old. In fact, his his story before him, his father, Amon, if you look at verse 24, just the, just before this chapter, in verse uh, chapter 33, verse 24, Amon's officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Amon, and they made Josiah his son king in his place. So this eight-year-old king comes to his throne amidst this Turmoil, where his his father, his wicked father, and before that his grandfather Manasseh, who was a extremely wicked king, but at the end of his life repented, and and God uh, responded to his repentance. You can read about that in chapter thirty three as well, verse uh, verse twelve and thirteen. He prayed he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea, and so he brought him back to Jerusalem. And then the next king, Amon, who is a wicked king, and he is assassinated. And then they kill all those who assassinated and made his son king. And so it's in that context that Josiah, at eight years old, eight years old, we just heard from an eight-year-old in our video, eight years old, becomes king in Judah, in in the southern nation of Judah. During a very difficult and challenging time politically and historically, for the people of Israel. And he reigns for 31 years. So we want to consider some things about this uh, this morning and, and the next two weeks as well. We're going to do a little series here on King Josiah. Uh, the, you know, the summary of his life, if you go to chapter 34 at the end of it, at the very end, the last phrase, last sentence, as long as he lived, they, that is Israel, did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. How unusual is that? to be said of any of the kings of Israel or Judah. 
So Josiah becomes king at eight years old. And we know from the culture and the history of the time that most likely he didn't really rule Israel, or we'll use the term Israel. We're talking about the nation of Judah, the Israelites. He didn't really rule them as an eight-year-old. He probably had what we call regents, which could be a, a relative, an uncle, you know, the previous king's brother, um, a committee. We don't, we aren't given any details in this case. But we know this throughout history that when a young boy or young woman becomes queen or young boy becomes king in, in, a, in a monarchy, that oftentimes a regency will actually rule in their place until they're of age. So we get a little history of Josiah here. And we're, let's read this here. Uh, verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Again, this is a summary of his life. And you just have to appreciate as you read the history of the kings of Israel and Judah, how different this is, how unusual this is to have this said about a king. There's just a handful of them that this can be said of, that they, and you notice the standard. The standard is always King David. He walked in the ways of his father, King David, who becomes a standard of a king who, who serves God, even with his failings and his sins and faults. He had a man who was a man after God's own heart and whom God had chosen and had promised the kingship would always be in his family. And so this is the standard. In Josiah, he does what, and he also says he does what's right in the eyes of the Lord, how, how did he get to this point? What what happened in this in this young man's life that that he came to this point in his life and he made these decisions while other kings like his father and his grandfather uh, chose to do such evil, even after following their predecessor Hezekiah, who was another one of the few righteous and good kings of the land. Well. What does he do? What, what is, how does this work itself out in his life? I wonder what happened. I wonder who influenced him. Was there a mother, a grandmother, somebody who, who influenced him that would teach and train him the, the ways of the Lord? The Holy Spirit obviously worked in his life and, and drew him to, to the to God of Israel. But what's the result? So the results we want to look at today, we get sort of again, we get these summary statements in verse, in verse 3. In the eighth year of his reign, so we do the math, he's 16 years old. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. So we really get, as we would say today, a teenager. You know, the age you can get a driver's license in our state. 16 years old is when he becomes king at eight. And in his life is gelling this 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 desire for God, this this hunger to, to do what's right. And at age 16, at age 16, it says, while he was still young, he began to seek God. He began to seek Yahweh, Elohim, the God of Israel, the God of his father, David. At 16 years old, God stirred in his heart and he began to seek out God and began to, to do what was right and, and, to, and, to, and to be close to God. You know, it'd be very easy. I mean, think of it. Think of the temptations for a young person, 16 years old, who is the king, who has everything at his disposal, even though Israel has been in difficult times, and the nation of Judah has been in difficult times, and the future is not looking very promising in some ways. Yet their arch enemy, Assyria, is, is on the decline rapidly. 
And, and, and think of what temptations and what, what, would, what a 16-year-old king could avail himself of. And no wonder they turned from God, given human condition and human weakness. But he turned to God. And then it says here, in his 12th year, which would make him 20 years old, and many of the commentators suggest this is probably when he actually fulfilled and actually assumed all the full responsibilities of a king. In the Levitical system, at 20 years old, this is an important age in serving God. And so many of the commentators suggest it's probably at this point, at 20 years old, that he is no longer under regents or anyone else's authority but that he now is solely ruling as the king of the Israelites. And at that age, it says, at 20 years old, in his 12th year, it says he began to, still in the middle of verse 3, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, Asherah poles, carved idols, cast images. Under his direction, the altars of Baal were cut down, and you can finish reading this section here. We have this long section through verse 7 of how he purges the land. His, his desire to serve God brought him to the point where he realized that all this idolatry, all these foreign gods. And, and, and remember that the, the situation with, with the Israelites is this. It's not that they had completely left Yahweh out, but they had now included him as just one of many other gods. I mean, they had... Astropoles and, and altars to Baal and Molech and other gods right in Jerusalem, right in the, in the surroundings of the, of the temple and maybe on the temple grounds, but also the temple to Yahweh, even though it's in disrepair, um, it's mixed in with all this syncretism, all these other gods of the land is all part of their, their genre, their culture, their context of idol worship. And it, and it, and it strikes him that in his desire to please God and seeking God, that this is wrong. It should be obvious, right? I mean, idolatry should be really obvious, but it's not always that obvious. It's not always that obvious to us. When, when the Apostle Paul says that greed or covetousness is idolatry, is it always so obvious to us? And, and but, but it is to Josiah. And he begins this, this work of purging the land of idolatry. This is a bold and a dangerous move. Now remember, his father was assassinated. His father was assassinated by those who wished to take the throne and the rulership from him. Purging the land of idolatry is not going to be popular. This is uh, the livelihood and the, and, the, and the power of many, many people are involved with this. It's a very dangerous and bold move, but it's the right thing to do. And so he purges the land. And you can read how, how they do this in, in Kings as well. And you'll see this throughout this chapter. And in the second, in the passage from second Kings, the details of actually destroying, burning, completely removing all the idolatry in the land. And after he purges, then we come to verse eight in the 18th years. Now we add eight to 18 and 26 years old. After this period of time of purging the land, and it took several years to do this, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joah's recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. They went to Hilkiah, the high priest, gave him the money that had been brought into the temple, which the Levites, who were the doorkeepers, 
had collected from the people. So after he purges the land of idolatry, now he is able, and this would be according to Levitical standard, he is now able to help them to purify the land, to prepare them to come back to God, to prepare the people, to lead the people back to God, this boy king, to purify, first to purge, and then to purify the land. And in order to do that, you'll notice he is going to repurify the land and the temple because the temple, the holy temple in Jerusalem has, is, is in great disrepair. It has been neglected. It has been abused. It's been parts of it destroyed. It's in terrible shape, terrible disrepair. The temple of God, the holy of holies, the place of the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be, where the scrolls are, all the implements that are there, in terrible disrepair. And so he's going to purify. But that's, that's a long process to purify the temple of God. I mean, if you read the Levitical standards, and, and also, where did he, where did he get this? Where did he find these? Who is teaching him this? How is he understanding this? He is seeking God. And in his seeking God, he has to seek, how do we do this? How do we get the temple back to its repaired towards functional? How do we cleanse it and purify the holy temple in Jerusalem? And so they begin this process. And you can read the process. And it's kind of interesting. Some of the details that are given here, verse 10, then they entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. They also gave money to the carpenters, the builders, to purchase dressed stone and timber for joists and beams for the building that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. The men did the work faithfully. It is interesting in Kings, it specifically says that Josiah said, I don't need a, I don't need an accounting from these men. I trust these men. It's interesting he says that. I don't need to, they don't need to account to me for how they're using the money. We trust them. And it's a really a mark of leadership that he put trustworthy and honest people in charge and then gave them to work to do. There must have been people working with the blueprints. You know, remember David gave the blueprints to Solomon. How do you get this back to where it's supposed to look like? When we did our remodel at church, we had to go back and get the original blueprints out to look at the original drawings. Someone had to go back and see how exactly do we do these things? How do we get these joists? How do we get these beams? Where do we put these stones? And this whole process, and he put people in charge that he could trust, honest men who were in charge of this, and, and put them over. And it was all within the Levitical system. And it is kind of interesting to me. Uh, he mentions the people over it. And specifically, it is interesting that in, in, in verse 12 here at the end, it says, the Levites, all who were skilled in playing musical instruments, had charge of the laborers and supervised all the workers from job to job. Some of the Levites were secretaries, scribes, and doorkeepers. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I, you know, we know in the Levitical system that, that the musicians, the choir directors, there was a very important part of the Levitical system. They were, they were professional people who did this. That was their ministry, their job. And here at this stage, he puts these musicians over these workers. I mean, that's, that's interesting to me. Now, I, when I was in, uh, after I graduated from high school, I worked in uh, painting, Fred Olson Painting Company, and we worked, I worked all the way through Alpha and I'm going back and forth to Michigan, coming home, going to South Pacific, doing my graduate studies. So I worked around new construction a lot. 
And one thing you always notice, and even with our painting crews and so forth, is that you know oftentimes what you'll find on the job site is music. And there's something about that while you're working. There's something about music. And it's interesting that, the, that these musicians were overseeing this work. And maybe they were playing their instruments and playing music while they were working. Well, it's just sort of a sidelight here. But they are... So the purification process at this critical time in Israel's history, they are purifying the temple and getting it ready to present it to God once again as it should be cleansed and holy and purified so the priesthood couldn't come back in. He's a wise king. He is seeking God and he's doing it according to what God has laid out for Israel. And even though it's been neglected and in terrible state of neglect and disrepair, they are spent, this money could be spent on his own palace. This money could be spent on anything he wants as king. He is absolute authority. He is a monarch. But he has chosen to put God's work first. I, just, I want to stop here just for a moment. You know, it's interesting that if you read the history of the Christian church, you will find that every major reformation, every major revival, you will find at the front of it often are the young people, the young leaders, the young pastors, the young people. And, and, and we never want to underestimate what God is doing. What eight-year-old today has God got his hand on? What eight-year-old, 16-year-old, 20-year-old today is really seeking what, what God wants for their life and is, and is in a position to lead and, and to impact God's ministry? You know, our church was, was built. Our church, I was here. I grew up in this church, and I know I was, I was part of it. And I really believed it when they kept telling us that we're doing this for our young people. It's what our church was built on, that our youth and our children are very important in the future. And of course, you know, we mentioned almost every week right now, during these unprecedented times we're in, things are so different. And yet, as I watch Susie and I watch Gary and Casey as they are working so hard to to continue our children and youth ministry, even in these difficult times, it's, it's because it's it's so important. And God is working right now in the lives of young people for the future, the future of this church is with our young people and the young adults. And, and, and God is at work. And we must never underestimate. And we must always remember that this is, this is the future if we really believe that. And here you have this young man who impacts Israel like no other king since King David, frankly. I think of all the kings, even Hezekiah, this young man, uh, this young king had this major impact and, and, and he did it as a young person because God was at work and he responded. And that's that's our future, friends. And we need to continue even as we move ahead in these days and weeks ahead and months ahead. We were just talking today, just chatting a little bit before this record here today. We don't even know what it's going to look like two months from now as far as our Christian ed, our youth, our ministry, our church. But we are going to pay attention to it. And we are going to do the best we can to work with you and your families because we are in partnership. And I trust as parents right now that this is an important part of your life. Even during these times of turmoil and these times where everything is so different, it'd be awful easy to neglect. Are we paying attention to the spiritual growth of our children and youth? God is at work. And let's never underestimate what God is doing. Josiah purifies. He purges. 
He steps out in a dangerous role. His life could be at stake if it's like his father's who was assassinated, but he's trusting God. He purges and he purifies the temple and the land of Israel for God's work. This is a wonderful account here. Verse 14, while they were bringing the money out, they were bringing out the money that had been in the temple of the Lord. They had collected money, it was in the temple. Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. It's called the book of the covenant and called the book of the law of the Lord. It's a question exactly what is this? Is this the whole Torah, all five books of Moses? Many of the Bible commentators would suggest to you that this particularly would be the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the, the, the Torah would be on scrolls. And this was probably the scroll of Deuteronomy because as we see the impact that this scroll has, the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses, Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. Where was this book? I mean, how do you, how do you misplace something out? These are large scrolls. These aren't pocket New Testaments. These are large scrolls. Was it hiding in plain sight? Was it there where it should have been all along? Was it stuffed away in a closet? Uh, how do you not, I mean, and, and how did, how did, if they had not been around, how did Josiah know the things he was doing? You see, the, 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 the scripture was in their heads. It was an oral tradition. The Levites and the priests, they knew it. And those who follow God still knew it. They were parts of it, but they found this intact scroll. He said, I found the scroll of the Lord. And Shaphan, verse 16, took the book to the king and reported to him, your officials are doing everything you have committed that you have been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord. They've entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. He read from it in the presence. What they do with it? They found it. But they didn't just find it. They had the spiritual sense to open it up and begin to read it. And they opened it up and they dared to do this in the presence of the king. And they said, King, we have this book. We found it intact. I think it's the, the I think it is the book of Deuteronomy. And they opened it up and they began to read it in the king's presence. In verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, he heard the words. He had to hear them. He tore his robes. He gave these orders to them. Then he lists the men there in verse 21. Go and inquire of the Lord. Now notice, for me, for me, and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book, that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. This really speaks uh, of volumes of the spiritual nature of this king. This young man, this young man who is king of the Israelites. What was the result of hearing he tears his robe. What is this for? It's mourning. He hears these words, and all of a sudden, for the first time, he really realized. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, read chapters 29 and 30, and in that section, you'll find, take time to read that. 
as it, as as Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy's second reading of the law. You have the law given in Exodus. You have the details in Leviticus. You have the history in Numbers. In Deuteronomy, they come on the, to the Jordan River, the Mount Nebo, where we stood many of us a few years back, looked out over the land of Israel. And, and Moses, in this, on the east side of the Jordan River, he, he goes over it the second time he presents the law to Israel to confirm to them, to, to agree to the covenant of God. So he reviews it, and this book goes over all this. And it tells clearly, if you obey me, that's all you have to do. I will bless you. I will bless you in amazing ways. But if you disobey and go after the gods, specifically the gods, the foreign gods, the Canaanite gods of the land who were, who were vile, it was, it was a horrible thing that, they, that it was practiced in the name of these gods. He says, if you go after these gods, I will curse you. You will lose this land. I will destroy you. I will take you away. And then in the midst of that, he says, but if you repent, I will bring you back. Even though you are scattered to the ends of this earth, I will gather you and I will bring you back. So it's this message of judgment for disobedience and sin. It's the message of hope for following God and the message of restoration for repentance. This is what the king is hearing. And, it, and as, he, as he hears this, he realizes, yes, this is who we are. We have gone after these other gods. We have gone after these gods. And we are worshiping them. And this is why we are in this state that we're in. And he, But I want you to notice. So he hears God's word. And he allows God's word to convict him. You know, the, the Bible is convicting. I mean, that... that it may not be popular always, but it's convicting. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you've got this amazing balance in his ministry of his deep love and compassion for the sinners, even when the others criticize him for it and welcome them and embrace them and embrace the children. And yet we also have the message of, of warning. Read the Olivet Discourse. We have the message to the to the hypocrites, the Pharisees and scribes, when he calls them sepulchers on the outside, they look nice and clean, but inside they're dead bones. I mean, God's word is is compassionate and loving, and God's word brings co- conviction of sin and of disobedience and of judgment for disobedience, but also the message of hope and salvation through God's grace and mercy. It's all there. And as he reads this, he is... But I want you, it really struck me that it specifically says that this, this is what sets this king apart. He doesn't say, look at the people have done. Look at the kings before me have done. Look at the prophets and priests have done. No. He says, go and inquire of the Lord for me. For me. And friends, we must start there. Where is God's word in our lives today? I mean, let's admit there are times where, you know, God's word is, is, is hiding in plain sight. Do we read it and do we allow it to speak? Do I allow it to speak to my heart? Do I, you know, it's, it's awful easy for me to say, yes, God, that's right. You need to convict those people. You need to convict that person. You need to convict that group. You need to change them. But the way to approach God, as we see of all the godly people in the old... King David, search me, O Lord, and know my heart and know my ways. You read the apostles, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. (laughs) You know, the, the apostle Paul, God chose me of all people, the worst of sinners, the worst of sinners. Listen, 
if we're going to talk about conviction from God's word, we need to start with, I need to start with me. And you need to start with you. I need to start with my arrogance and my pride and my human nature. I need to start with my idolatry of anything that I've put before God in my life. I need to start with my materialism and the things that I love, the things that I put hope in. I need to start with my prejudices, my thoughts toward others, my arrogance. If I start with yours, then I am, I'm starting in the wrong place. God's word should be convicting. And it convicted Josiah. This is about him as king. He, he is in the line of David. These are his forefathers, his father, that allowed this to happen. And he is convicted of his own family and his own life. And, and this is the amazing thing that really strikes me about Josiah. What, what a godly person he is and a humble person that he says that he says lord he says men go inquire of the lord for me and for the remnant this leftover in israel and judah that god has left us about what is written in this book great is the lord's anger poured out on us us not them but us because our fathers have not kept the word of the lord they have not acted in accordance he had to be reading and listening to deuteronomy but the message of Deuteronomy also is a message of hope, of judgment, conviction, but of hope and of God's love for his own people. Whom he's. It's in that passage where he said, don't say it's, you can't do this. Don't say it's in the heavens. Who will bring it down? It's in your heart. It's in your heart. This is what he's reading. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Are we willing to be convicted by God's word? Are we willing, first of all, we have to hear it. The Bible is laying in plain sight in our lives, in our homes, in our communities, in our world, in our country today. Is, is it laying there in plain sight waiting to be discovered? Is my Bible, in whatever form I have it, it's, it's laying there in plain sight. I don't have to go far to find it, but I have to listen to it. And I have to be willing to let God speak to me, even if it hurts, even if it's convicting that's part of our story, friends. It's part of what, who we are as God's people that we have to stand up and be willing to say, yes, this is God's word. We didn't write it. It's God's word. And it's truth. And it's hope. It's hope. Well, this is, we'll continue this in our next, next time we're together next week. But I do want to just wrap up with this thought. Verse 22, Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him. He said, go find out. Go find out. What, what, we, what do we do? What, how, find out from the people. What is, find out from those who know this word and help us understand. What do we do? And they go to the prophetess. The prophetess is a woman, Huldah. And then it says in verse, 20, in verse 23, she said to them, this is what the Lord of God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent me to you, who sent you to me. And here's her message. And she, and she pronounces a, a bold, uh, I mean, prophets lose their lives over things like this. But she's, she, she's, she's bold and she's honest and she's a, a woman of God and she sends back this message, a true message. This is what the Lord says. You ask me, here's what he says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah, that's all going to happen. 
Go back and read it. Go back and read the last part of Deuteronomy. Why? Because they have forsaken me. They've burned incense to other gods. They've provoked me to anger by the, all their hands have made. My anger will be poured out in this place and it will not be quenched. That's the answer the king receives. But then he receives a second answer. And then she goes on to say in verse 27, but listen, because you were responsive, because your heart was tender, and because you were honest before God, and you humbled yourself. Read this section. You humbled yourself. God says, I've heard you, and I declare, I will gather you to your fathers. You will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on the place and those who live here. They sent the answer back to Josiah. We'll come back to this next week. Here's his choice. What does he do now? He's told these things are all going to happen. Yeah, it's too late. The die has been cast. I am going to bring judgment to people. But in the past, that's God's brought that message too. He told Moses, he said, Moses, stand back. I'm going to destroy this people. And Moses says, God, don't do that. Don't do that for your namesake. And God relents. Abraham, I'm going to destroy those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God, would you, for 50 people, 40 people, 30 people, 20 people, 10 people, would you spare them? God says, yes. So the message of destruction and judgment is coming, but there's a history in the Bible of God relenting, you know, and we know of God's plan. But also for Josiah, his personal stake in this is, you're okay. You are not going to see it happen. What does a godly leader do? What does a godly person do? What are your choices? Do you retire to your palace and say, well, that's what, the, that's what God's told me. I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to have to see it. So you guys deal with it. This is what God said. What, is it, what does a godly leader do? Well, we're going to stop right here. We're out of time today, but we're going to come back to this uh, next time in our next session when I continue. What, what does a godly leader do? And we're going to learn from Josiah. But our lesson, our takeaways today, friends, let's never underestimate and let's never get in the way. Let's never get in the way of what God is doing through our youth. What is the future of this ministry? What is the future of this ministry? Our second takeaway is God's word hiding in plain sight in your life right now? Come on, we all, I, I'm with you. We're all, we're all, we all get through these parts in our life where we, we neglect really listening to God's word. That's one thing just to, but to listen to it. Is it hiding in plain sight? Are we willing to listen and are we willing to let it convict not you and them, but me? Am I willing to let God's word convict me? And if it, if it does, Am I willing to respond and pay the price and respond the way God would have me to respond if I truly am one like Josiah who is seeking after God's heart? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the challenge of your word. I just thank you for this historical account of this godly young man, this godly young man who stood apart because he sought you and responded to your call. May we be those kind of people today. In Christ's name, amen.